welcome back to the Cool Mission podcast. This episode is the second part of the talks from the recent Cool Mission Women's Day 2022. If you've just joined us, let me encourage you to head to the previous episode for the first part of this talk. Here's Rachel Jones giving the second part of her talk on being created and called. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered round him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him. He turned round in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And the next reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thank you, Claire. Well, we left Eve in a pretty bleak place, didn't we? A woman on her knees in the shame of her sin, cast out of God's presence in the garden and looking ahead to a future filled with pain and frustration. And maybe that's how you felt too at one time or another. Ashamed, you know, all, all too aware of all the ways in which you fall short or like the mistakes or grievances of your past are weighing down on you, like you've got this big pointy arrow that you're sure is signaling you out to everyone. Perhaps you feel far from God. You know, he's so big and holy that he can't possibly be interested in little old you. 
Uh, maybe his track record in your life to date appears to do little to prove it to the contrary. Maybe you feel pained and frustrated, trapped in an ailing body or a failing family or a job or some other situation that you just can't see a way out of. We left Eve in a pretty bleak place. And as we move through the Old Testament, things don't appear to get that much better for the women of the Bible. We talked in the last session about this impression that we, women get the raw end of the deal when it comes to our bodies. And when we look at the Bible, we can easily get the impression that women get the raw end of the deal when it comes to God as well. You know, for one thing, women don't really feature much in the pages of scripture. And when they're not missing in action, it can seem like they're only there to be married off, mugged off, misused, and sometimes even murdered. I'm sure I can't be the only one who's read the Bible and thought, really, God, do you hate women or something? Well, he doesn't. He really doesn't. And to assure us of that, I want to take us to Jesus, the image of the invisible gods. Jesus, the ultimate revelation of who God is and what he is like. So however Jesus regards women is how God regards women. And my aim for this session is pretty simple. It's that we would see Jesus, that we would look at him. Because whether we're feeling shame or alienation or pain and frustration, or if we're just bored and lukewarm in our spiritual lives, Jesus is who we need. He's always who we need. And on your knees before Jesus is the best place in the world to be. And the woman we meet in Mark 5 has certainly been brought to her knees, hasn't she? We're told in verse 25 that she's been subject to bleeding for 12 years. I wonder what you were doing 12 years ago. A lot changes in 12 years, doesn't it? Except for this woman, this thing hadn't changed, or rather, it had only got worse. And we don't know exactly what was wrong with her, but the wording implies that it's what we might delicately call a woman's issue, some kind of gynecological condition that results in permanent menstrual bleeding. And as such, she'd check yes to all of those feelings we've just described. Shame? This woman experiences great shame. I mean, women's health issues are often the cause of embarrassment, even today, aren't they? I mean, hysterectomies rarely make it into the prayer news at my church. Uh, but if yours has, then good on you. Uh, and that's in 2022. So there's this kind of base level of embarrassment that, that often comes from being afflicted in an intimate part of your body. But for this woman, the shame goes deeper. Because Leviticus 15, in God's law, it tells us that under God's law at that time, this, woman with this woman's bleeding renders her ritually unclean. Here's a snippet from Levit Leviticus 15. Anything she lies on during her period will be unclean, and anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean 
till evening. Anyone who touches anything she sits on will be unclean. They must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening, whether it is the bed or anything she was sitting on. When anyone touches it, they will be unclean till evening. Unclean, 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 unclean. Now, there's a lot we could say that would put that passage in context, and not all of it we have time to go into now. It's worth saying that under Old Testament law, to be unclean was not to be guilty, per se. There were lots of things that that made you temporarily unclean, and that was just as true for men as it was for women. And even good God-ordained things, like sex and childbirth, would make you temporarily unclean unclean. So women were not at fault for having a period. But being unclean wasn't something, so being unclean wasn't something you had to repent of, but but it did mark you out as unfit for God's presence. As we see kind of three categories in Leviticus, there are holy things, there are clean things, there are unclean things. Holy things are dedicated to God's service. Clean things can come into God's presence but unclean things cannot. And so this, this regular cycle of blood and water that marked a woman's life, clean and unclean, served as a reminder that all was not right with the world. Israel had their tabernacle and then their temple by Jesus' day, but humankind had not been ultimately restored into fellowship with their God. It was not a permanent fix And we know from other incidents in the Gospels that the people of Jesus' day were quick to assume, wrongly for the record, that suffering such as this woman's suffering was a direct consequence of a person's individual sin. So in John 9, uh, Jesus and his disciples meet a blind man and the disciples ask, who sinned, Jesus, this man or his parents? Because it must have been someone. Maybe people asked the same thing when they saw this woman. What have you done to deserve this? Because it must have been bad. Can you imagine the shame she felt? And alienation, too, because she's unclean, and anyone who touches her becomes unclean, too. And that's not a condition to be entered into willingly. Leviticus 15 is social distancing and then some, isn't it? One of the things that many of us have learnt from the pandemic is just how important touch is, how much a hug means, hand on a shoulder, just to be able to sit next to your friend on a sofa inside. These were some of the things we missed most, weren't they? And perhaps this woman missed them too. So she's alienated from her community But she's alienated from God as well, because as we've just seen, she can't come to the temple to worship. She can't come into the presence of God. God doesn't just feel far away. He's physically inaccessible. And then there's the pain and frustration. I can't even begin to imagine how physically draining this long-term bleeding must have been. It's certainly been financially draining for her. Verse 26 tells us she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. 
And as the money drained away, so does the hope, as every promising avenue turns into a dead end. Except one. There's this man called Jesus in town, and they say that he can heal anything. But this woman's sense of shame is is strong. She doesn't want a public encounter, but she thinks, if I could just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And so she, she goes to find him, and there Jesus is with this huge crowd around him as he walks along. And this woman's kind of trailing along at the back, but she manages to jostle her way to be close enough to touch him. Maybe she gets her elbows out until there he is in front of her, just inches away, and she reaches out and touches his clothes. And she feels the fabric graze her fingertips. And then, immediately, she's healed. She she feels something else deep in her body. She's healed. And then the camera angle shifts to Jesus. And he, he knows somehow that power has gone out of him. And so he stops and he asks, who touched me? And one of the funny things about reading the Gospels, isn't it, that we we rarely get given an indication of tone. Here's Jesus in the midst of this crowd, and everyone wants a piece of him. Everyone wants a bit of Jesus. And I know what tone I'd ask that question in. Who touched me? Back off. Or maybe we can imagine Jesus with a whole inbox full of unread WhatsApp messages And the phone pings again. Who's messaging me now? Who touched me? But Jesus isn't like that. The disciples think he's being ridiculous. Verse 31. Move on, Jesus. Loads of people touched you. But Jesus keeps looking. And the woman's there in the crowd... And the pain has gone, but now it's another sensation in her body. It's the butterflies in the stomach and the thumping of her chest and the trembling of her hands. Is she going to be found out? Exposed? Rebuked? Because one thing's for sure, unclean women are not meant to go around touching male Jewish rabbis. But Jesus is still looking, and she knows that she's the one he's looking for. So she, so she owns up. Verse 33, then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And maybe there was a pause, a stunned silence from the crowd. Our woman is there with her face in the dust. She can't bear to look. A woman on her knees, but she's on her knees in front of Jesus. And that's the best place to be. And so imagine her surprise when from his lips come these beautiful words, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. See, Jesus wasn't looking for this woman so he could rebuke her or shame her or somehow take the healing back from her. No, he wants to look her in the eye and say, daughter, 
your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Just think about what each of those phrases would have meant to that woman. We'll work through them backwards. Be freed from your suffering. No more appointments with no good doctors. No more crippling pain or soul-sapping fatigue. This thing that's been ailing you for 12 years is gone and it's not coming back. You're free. Go in peace. Return to your community. No longer ashamed and shunned. No longer so weighed down by embarrassment that you cannot meet people's eyes. Go and live in peace with your neighbor. Restored to your community. Your shame has been taken away. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Daughter, no longer alienated, no longer cut off from God, unable to come into his presence. Instead, Jesus bestows on her this most intimate, most tender of titles, daughter. And what I love about this passage, and you can see that in the first bit of Mark 5 we read, is that standing right there beside Jesus while all this is going on is Jairus. And Jairus is what you could call a do-anything dad. Do you know a dad like that? They do anything for their kids. And Jairus, too, has been on his knees before Jesus just moments before in verse 22, desperate because his little girl, his daughter, aged 12, is very sick, and it looks like she's going to die. So he begs Jesus to come help, because Jairus would do anything for his daughter. And they're on the way to his house when this incident takes place, when Jesus stops, because he'd do anything for this daughter. And you know, Jesus would do anything for you, daughter. That's what we see as Mark's gospel narrative continues. Jesus doesn't just heal people because it's a nice thing to do. He heals people as a sign of the ultimate thing he's come to do. Not just to heal, but to save. In fact, the Greek word there means both things, heal and save. Daughter, your faith has saved you. And Jesus will do anything. In fact, he's done everything to make that possible. He went to the cross. He took on your shame, your sin. He was alienated from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He underwent agonizing physical pain. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, as Isaiah writes it. Why? Because he'll do anything for his daughter. And you know, you, you can't catch cleanness, can you? I know that to be true. Every time I go for a walk and take my muddy boots off in the hall of my flat, it doesn't matter that I hoovered that very morning. The freshly vacuumed carpet cannot make the boots clean, but the boots can definitely make the carpet unclean. And uncleanness under God's law 
worked the same way in Leviticus. So when a, when a clean person touched an unclean person, they became unclean, not the other way around. But when this woman touched Jesus, the rules were reversed. And Jesus, God's pure and spotless holy one, made this woman clean. Because one day, he would take on the uncleanness of us all. And anyone who has faith in him can receive his pure and spotless holy record in return. And you know what? Even a fingertip faith is enough. Reach out to Jesus today. Grab hold of him. And what he says to this woman, he says to you, daughter, your faith has saved you. Maybe you've come today feeling far from God, feeling like a second-class citizen in his kingdom for whatever reason, feeling like you never measure up, never meet the expectations. Jesus bestows on you the title of daughter, daughter of God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You just receive it by faith. God's beloved, precious daughter. And Jesus has given you access not to an earthly temple, but to his father's throne room in prayer. The way is open. You can come to him today. Jesus says, daughter, go in peace. I was talking to a Christian friend about Jesus the other day, and we were chatting about how different he is to us. And she said, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for him to live life without this back catalogue of regrets in constantly in the back of his mind. And I thought that was such a telling comment because it's true, isn't it? So many of us live with a constant back catalogue of regrets. Maybe it's things that we've done, words that came out of our mouth, relationships we've damaged, poor decisions we've made. Maybe it's things that have been done to us through no fault of our own. But either way, when that feeling of shame is weighing down on you, having someone tell you, it's fine, don't worry about it, doesn't really cut it. But Jesus' death and resurrection really do cut it. He really has removed the cause for shame because he really has removed that catalogue. And while we may still have to live with some of the consequences, in God's eyes, it's no cause for shame anymore. So we can live in peace. You can walk into church tomorrow and look your brothers and sisters in the eye because at the end of the day, you're all just forgiven sinners. And Jesus says, daughter, be freed from your suffering. And we might have to wait for this one. And I, I know if you're sat here today living with a, a long-term chronic physical or mental health condition, then it might feel like a very, very long wait. The Bible doesn't promise that the believer's life now will be free from suffering. 
to the contrary, really. It says that it's like we're living on a labor ward. Romans tells us that the whole creation is groaning, as in the pains of childbirth. And it's exhausting, and it's painful, and it feels like it's taking forever. But labor doesn't last forever. And there'll be new life and love and joy on the other side of it. The Bible promises that one day, when Jesus returns, our bodies will be transformed just as instantaneously as that woman's body was. 1 Corinthians 15, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. That's where we set our sights when our women's bodies frustrate us. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Is the Bible good news for women? It most certainly is. But what about life in the meantime? What does it look like? to live as God's daughters in the middle of a labor ward. We spent some time thinking about how God calls us his daughters through Christ. And now I want to finish by thinking more briefly about the life he commissions his daughters for. And that's where we come on to these verses in Matthew 28 and the heading in your booklet called on mission. And there'll be familiar verses to many of us But I wanted to end here because some commentators see in them an echo of that commission we saw in Genesis 1. So this is an idea I first came across in the work of a writer called Hannah Anderson, uh, who's worth a follow on Twitter if you've got that. Uh, So remember earlier we thought about God's commissioning of mankind to be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Go and have babies, God said. And it was an expansive vision more and more image bearers, giving more and more praise and glory to God. And under the old covenant, God's old way of relating to his people, God's people grew primarily through biological reproduction. And as the Old Testament unfolds, we watch them grow from one childless couple, Abraham and Sarai, into an entire nation. But now... In Matthew 28, Jesus' death and resurrection have brought about a new covenant, a new way in which God relates to his people. Jesus has formed a new humanity. It's a new dawn, a new era, a new kingdom. And it begins here with these words spoken first to the 11 disciples and then by extension to those of us who would believe in Jesus through their testimony. Verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Just like in Genesis 1, it's an expansive vision. More and more people from more and more nations living as disciples of Christ more and more wholeheartedly. 
So for God's people today, this is the main way we bring life into the world, not by bearing children, but by making disciples. The Genesis 1 call to bear children has become part of this bigger mission. Because if you're a parent, the people whom you're called to make disciples of includes your kids. And I think Jesus' words here include both evangelism, so leading people to the point where they make a public declaration to follow Jesus as Lord in baptism, and the ongoing work of discipleship, teaching those who've been baptized to obey Jesus in everything. So let me ask you, is this commission your commission? Is this the controlling call on your life? Or is it something else? Go and make everyone like you. Go and forge a career that will give you a good pension pot and win you respect. Go and convince everyone on a Sunday morning that you're a good Christian. What's the commission that's driving you? And I've got to be honest that when I look at my own life, I know that all too often it's not this one. You know, when I consider how I spend my time and the things that occupy my idle thoughts and what it is that brings me joy, and I line that up against these words, I feel deeply convicted. But please, sister, make this commission the drumbeat that you march to, the tune that you dance to. Will you pray that for yourself later? Will you pray that for me? Will you pray that for one another? And let me encourage you too that disciple-making often looks very ordinary. It happens as we speak of Jesus and open up the Bible or sing his praises to one another. It happens as we teach children at church or around the dinner table, as we draw alongside a friend and ask questions to draw out their hurting hearts. It happens as we invite friends to read the Bible with them or invite them to come to church. It happens as we share what's encouraged us from a passage or, or as we praise God for his goodness in our life as we chat about how our week's been on a Sunday. It happens as we pray with and for one another, as we plead with God for Christ's kingdom to grow and for Christ's people to mature. And one final observation to finish with, this disciple-making happens together. Just as both man and woman were essential to that first commission in Genesis, literally coming together to fill the earth and subdue it. Neither could do it on their own. So too, in the church, men and women come together to make disciples. Neither can do it on their own. They're both essential, all backgrounds, all giftings, coming together in the service of Jesus. I'm guessing some of you, uh, like me, enjoyed the Olympics last summer. And uh, one of the fascinating things about Tokyo 2020 was the introduction of these mixed gender relays in events like athletics and swimming. Do you remember these? 
Basically, each team, uh, in each team you had two men and two women, and each team could choose which gender was going to do which leg of the race. And so you had these situations where you had a man versus a woman. And it was phenomenal because the man was just streaks ahead every time. And I found these relays fascinating because in a cultural moment where we're very keen to downplay the differences between men and women, these events, if anything, kind of brought them into sharper relief. Men are physically stronger than women. But there was also something really beautiful about watching these teams celebrate together at the end. Men and women, different, but equally on the same team, running the same race, pursuing the same goal, celebrating the same victory, and wearing the same medal at the end, together. And that's the dynamic we're meant to see in the church. The witness of scripture is that men and women are distinct, but equal and complementary. And in the church, we partner on the same team, running the same race, pursuing the same goal, celebrating the same victories, and one day wearing the same crown of life together as we seek to fulfill that mission to go and make disciples to the glory of God. And praise God that we get to be part of it. That's anything but the raw end of the deal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that he saves us and frees us and brings us peace. Thank you that he has made us your daughters. And thank you that you use us to bring the wonderful news of the Lord Jesus to others. Please would you help us to be consumed by that. Please would you help us to look to the day when we'll join your people round your throne in blood-washed white robes and sing that salvation belongs to our God. We so look forward to that day, Lord. Please empower us by your spirit to keep running the race until we reach the finish line. In Jesus' name, amen.